that Neptune and the others are out of jail, and they were the most prominent, and that this person that you're talking about is still in jail, to me underscores what I just told you. Some people are in jail, but not for political reasons. But since they belong to a certain party, they are shopping this around and saying, it's because I belong to this party that I'm in jail. Despite Joseph's assertions, pressure to free Dauphin is growing. Congresswoman Maxine Waters of Los Angeles recently wrote to Preval and U.S. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton calling for Dauphin's release on human rights and medical grounds. He is severely ill with hernia and prostate conditions. Dauphin is detained at the Port-au-Prince National Penitentiary, where 4,000 prisoners are crowded into a facility built for 1,800. Judith Scher, FSRN. And that wraps it up for today's newscast. You've been listening to Free Speech Radio News. From Bogota, Colombia, I'm Manuel Rueda. I invite you to listen to WCBN for the blues. From the campus of the University of Michigan, streaming live on the web at WCBN.org, you're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. The views and opinions expressed on WCBN public affairs programming are solely those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily represent those of WCBN as a whole or the licensees of this station, the Regents of the University of Michigan. Listening to Closets Are for Clothes, I'm David Christopher Meitzler. On this episode of Closets, it's still summertime, so take a trip. Trips and vacations in the lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgendered community, it's sometimes known as a gaycation. Travel for the LGBT community is a special segment of the tourism market. Transgendered folk, lesbian, and gay couples will probably appreciate the same beautiful scenes of our national parks, beaches, and biking trails as straight couples do. But what's important is that when members from this community take a trip, they want to feel welcome and comfortable. Same-sex couples want to experience the joys of vacation without the daily concerns of discrimination they most likely have to deal with when not on vacation. Vacation fun, sunburn, flat tires, getting lost, awkward family reunions, bites from mosquitoes and ticks, and yes, also cooking on an outdoor grill, wave riding, and hand-in-hand walks on the beach. The LGBT community wants it all. And another thing about LGBT trip-taking, travel to some far-off land may be an opportunity to indulge in the more, uh, more in the culture, more so than when at home. 
Many parts of the travel industry and municipalities have learned that the LGBT community can be a substantial part of business. The money spent by LGBT people is known as the pink dollar or the pink pound. An August 2007 USA Today article on the subject stated that the LGBT market was worth $55 billion annually. Well, my guest for this edition of Closets is Andrew Collins. In the mid-1990s, he conceived of and wrote Fodor's Gay Guide to the USA, which won a Lau Thomas Travel Journalism Award from the Society of American Travel Writers. He followed that initial book with six more regional gay guides for Fodor's on destinations ranging from San Francisco to Amsterdam. Since 1996, he's written the bi-weekly gay travel column called Out of Town, which appears in GLBT newspapers across the U.S., including Michigan's own Between the Lines among them. He also contributes to travel articles for The Advocate magazine. He teaches travel writing and editing for New York City's Gotham Writers Workshop and speaks regularly to groups and tourism organizations about marketing to the gay and lesbian community. For the past two years, Collins has been the expert guide on GLBT travel for the New York Times-owned website, about.com, where you can find and subscribe to his travel blog. The website is gaytravel.about.com. He joins us by phone from his home in Portland, Oregon. Hello, Andrew. Hello, David. Hello, and you are finally home. Is that where, is that where you are now? And in, in, uh, this is uh, in Portland, Oregon? I am. I've been home for less than 24 hours, but I am here. And uh, you, you're all about travel, I guess. Uh, I am pretty much. Every now and then uh, I write something that's perhaps not explicitly travel, but I think, uh, as we'll probably discuss a little bit, I think you can sort of find travel in almost any subject. Mm-hmm. And how often like, do your trips go for? Are they just uh, weekend jaunts or several weeks at a time or what? Well, you know, I used to, for a good bit of the 90s, I would actually, I didn't live anywhere. I was a true nomad, and I had just a post office box and a storage locker, and I would travel for six, seven, eight months at a time. Uh, this was when I was doing the research for the Fodor's Guide. So I was driving all around the country and, um, and a bit of Canada and then doing some trips abroad. Um, but since around 2000, I've kind of made it a policy to not travel more than half the time. But I would say I pretty much hit that. So usually 12 to 15 days a month. Um, and anywhere from, you know, short two-day trips to up to that, to that length of time for if I'm going to Europe or going somewhere fairly far away, I might go for two weeks, maybe even three weeks occasionally, but I try to avoid that. Mm-hmm. Is most of your travel inside or outside the U.S.? It is mostly inside the U.S., but it's increasingly international. So I would say the breakdown is probably about uh, two-thirds U.S. and, and one-third outside of the U.S. Mm-hmm. And is it always in, in uh, as part of research? Or, I mean, how, how do you distinguish when you're traveling for work and when you're trying to just have a good time and just go out? It's a very, it's a very, very gray line. Yeah. Um, I I don't, you know, I, I can't really remember when I last just took a vacation where I wasn't doing some bit of research, but certainly some vacations are more driven in that direction. Um, and I try to work just a little bit on the, while I'm, at, while I'm in wherever I'm going. Um, but most of the time it's driven by work. And, you know, obviously my work is to write about how people vacation and where they vacation. So even if I'm having fun, and I am generally having fun when I'm working, 
um, it is still part of my job. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're going to be talking all through this episode tonight in, in, on, of Closets about traveling and, and vacations and uh, the, 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 you know, the, play, the best places and gay-friendly places to go and, and uh, sites of interest for the gay and lesbian transgender population. But, uh, you know, travel doesn't necessarily mean vacation. How do you, how do you distinguish the two? I actually think the travel, you know, strictly speaking, it just means getting out and about. And that could be as simple as going and exploring a neighborhood of, of whatever city or town you live in that you haven't in some time or that you never have, and kind of trying to see it through a new lens. Um, or it could be trying to, I mean, obviously we travel for work sometimes, or we travel to visit relatives, or there are all sorts of reasons that we have to get into a car or onto a plane or onto a train and go someplace. Yeah. Um, sometimes that's you know, set aside specifically as a leisure vacation, but I think you can kind of find pleasurable things and pleasurable aspects of traveling in, in almost any trip in which you leave the house. Right. And so why do we do it? I mean, obviously we, 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 we uh, visit relatives and we have a, a, a purposeful for reason for traveling, but uh, we also but, like but to relax. For doing so? Yeah. Uh, I think... You know, I think for people, there are a couple of things. There's there's relaxation, certainly. So there are people who, who find that this is a great way to counter having to work hard all of the time. Okay, so it's a reward. Um, and, I'm sorry? It's a reward for work. It's a reward. Yeah. Uh, and, it's, and it's rewarding insofar as it has an educational component or, and I mean, that sounds kind of, uh, you know, like not fun necessarily for everybody. <laughs> but if it's, you know, education just in something as simple as, uh, as, Where's a great beach, or where's a great town that has terrific food, or great great wine tasting? That's certainly education of a certain kind as well, and it's fun. Um, so there's curiosity, you know. There's there's wanting to learn about things and wanting to see what other places are like. And then I think the other biggie is romance, um, either to look for it or to go somewhere with somebody you're dating mm-hmm. or somebody you uh, you've been dating for a long time and perhaps see them in a different light and. Enjoy yourselves together mm-hmm. in, a, in a different way than you might when you're at home. Mm-hmm. So the flip side, why don't we travel? There's, you know, we, we I can personally say that I, I often come up with reasons not to take a trip somewhere, not to go on a vacation, not to spend a weekend somewhere else other than home. Well, you know, I think for a lot of people, inertia plays a role in that. I mean, traveling requires not just getting up and, and physically going somewhere, but, but it often requires some advanced planning. So, you know, there's kind of where am I going to find the time to sit down and do a little research and, and book the trip and figure out where we're going to stay. And you can you can put that off forever and ever and ever and never end up leaving. Uh, plenty of people just don't want to leave, and I can certainly understand that. I have, I have great friends who just don't really like to go places. It's not that interesting to them. Or maybe, you know, once a year for a few days, that's plenty. And then, of course, I have others who... Think of nothing but traveling at every free moment they have. Some of it's just interest, and then uh, the other one is just economics. You know, it's, it costs money to travel. Um, even to go cheaply and even to go close by, it, there's some expenditure involved typically, and, and some of us just can't afford to do it all the time. Now, in the publications that you've written for in the articles, have you ever addressed that issue of, of you know, ways to travel on the cheap? And, and we've, uh, many, I, I've seen books before or heard of books where, you know, Europe on a, a buck a day or a pound a day sure. or, or something. Um, and uh, the idea is that you're really economizing and minimizing, but that I think that concerns me, doesn't that minimize your experience? What would you say about that? 
I think it can, and I think maybe one assumption or one fundamental pitfall that people run run into when they try to plan a budget trip is that they they try to sort of scrimp on every aspect of the trip. So, so for example, they're going to go somewhere, and they only have you know they're going to go go away for a weekend. They're going to drive somewhere, let's say from Michigan, and, and Somewhere that's within a three-hour drive, and they're going to take their car, and they think of every single thing that they could spend money on, and they try to spend as little as possible to keep it within whatever that budget is, um, which is understandable if you're trying to save money. But one way I think to get around that is to sort of figure out and think ahead of time: well, Why am I really going? Why am I going to such and such a place? And what will make me happiest when I'm there? And Maybe it's just one thing. Maybe it's just to see a particular museum exhibit, or it's to visit a couple of great friends. Um, and maybe it involves a splurge. Maybe you know the goal is that you're going, you're going with your boyfriend or your girlfriend or someone you just started dating, and you really want to stay uh, just one of those nights, someplace pretty nice and romantic, and maybe it has a fireplace in the room and all that. Or you, or, or maybe food is very important to you, and, and where you stay isn't. Um, and it's really worth thinking. Well, what? What, what would make me happy in terms of a meal? Is there one restaurant that I can kind of do a splurge and maybe save money by staying at a cheap motel because I don't really care where I spend the night? And so I think it's, it's giving yourself, uh, not necessarily a splurge, but giving yourself some really fun things to do on whatever that trip is and not just looking at the whole trip across the board as must save here, must save here. You know, maybe, you're, maybe the thing that's going to make you happy is going on a hike and that doesn't cost you anything. And that's one of the nice things about hiking, as long as you have some equipment. And, and I think what I'm hearing from you is really perspective. And, and uh, maybe for some people it's a vacation to, to go and splurge and spend large amounts of, of money because maybe they've been conserving uh, money all, all year round. And so it's, uh, it's fun to do it that way. Right. And, and other people uh, are more um, uh, even even balanced, even tempered in, in their in their expenditures on, on going out the trips and they just they're really going out to see things and to right. walk places and ride places and, and drive places. Yeah. So Yeah, I think that's right. So let's now talk a little bit about the, the gay experience, the gay and lesbian transgender uh, idea and what we know as a gaycation. And can you tell me what what has your experience shown you really about the idea that when um, gay and lesbian people go on vacation, they're perhaps more out on vacation than they are at home. Well, I would say that across the board, and this doesn't just apply to, to gays and lesbians, it applies sort of to everybody, that there's always a potential when you change your surroundings or when you go somewhere that isn't familiar to you and you don't know people. There's always this opportunity to sort of adopt a different persona, mm-hmm. be a little different than you are. And if you are at home, perhaps uh, a little more discreet or perhaps closeted and you're just not really out about being gay, traveling might present you with an opportunity to be more out or to go out and socialize in some gay establishments or stay at a gay resort. I think the inverse can also be true. I mean, I think, I think it could be the case that if you live in, um, in a city that has a, a really, you know, out vibrant gay neighborhood and you're very out and everybody knows that you're out and you're you're kind of a big part of the scene. Sometimes you might just want to go somewhere where it's just it's just not really thought about and you're not going to any gay bars and you're not really necessarily trying to partake of the scene and, and, and be known as uh, oh yeah, you're that you're that person at home who has this you know, you're part of the social set or part of the scene. So it isn't necessarily that you're more out. I think it's just, just an opportunity to be perhaps a little different than you are at home. 
All right. So, um, and, and this may be a little, uh, this is sort of related, but where's the gayest place to go in the country, in the United States? Where's the gay, the gayest place to go? Well, that's an, that's an interesting question. I suppose it depends on your definition, and there are lots of ways that we can define gayest. But if you're going to look at it, look at it strictly as a vacation destination, I think you're looking at a handful of cities uh, that have both very sizable gay communities and also um, neighborhoods with high, con- high concentrations of, of gay residents and gay-owned businesses. So you're looking at kind of the big populous cities like in New York or San Francisco and, and Los Angeles, and specifically you're looking at neighborhoods like the Castro in San Francisco and Chelsea and the West Village in New York. Okay, so um, there are there are large, um, larger cities. Well, I, I think what I'm hearing is that larger cities will be more supportive of a of a gay and lesbian population, and then within the cities. There are sort of little little kernel areas of of uh, rainbows, <laughs> colorful. Yeah, you, yeah, we're areas. we're going to see the uh, the rainbow flag hoisted the highest, perhaps. Um, and then, in addition to that, I think you know you have smaller communities, really resort destinations or, or vacation driven destinations mm-hmm. that have historically developed very, very, very strong um, affinities with the gay community over the years, and those include places like Provincetown, Massachusetts, Fire Island in New York, and right in Michigan, the town of Saugatuck, Mm -hmm. um, and out west in Palm Springs and and Russian River area of California, which is just north of San Francisco. And there are probably, um, I mean, I'm leaving out a half dozen others, Key West and Fort Lauderdale, those are two others down in Florida that come up. So there's probably a bunch. So so what attracts... What, what is it about those areas that attract the gay, lesbian, transgendered uh, alternate population? Well, the consistency that you see in a number of, not necessarily all, but a number of resort communities or smaller towns is that uh, it's two things. One is that they had some kind of artistic component to them historically. So at some, mm-hmm. some point earlier in the 20th century, they may have been arts colonies. They may have had a big uh, theater community. And so they, they had some element going for them that drew a lot of gay people to them. And that's certainly true of Provincetown and Agunkowit and Saugatuck and, and places that have a strong either fine arts and or performing arts history. Um, so there's that. And then the other thing in, in a lot of these places is that they're kind of at the end of the road. They're often, they're often out there and they're hard to get to. Mm-hmm. And now that might not mean so much, but 40 or 50 years ago, if you're gay and you're trying to get someplace that's sort of out of the mainstream and, and out of the uh, perhaps hostile gaze of the rest of society, um, gaze, G-A-Z-E, um, then someplace like Fire Island, which you have to take a ferry boat to, or Key West, which is literally at the end of the U.S. one highway that extends all the way down the eastern seaboard, um, you know, a place like that has a certain appeal. Hmm. So uh, all these places we're talking about are... are uh, you know, any number of distances away from each other or away from any point, you know, in the country. And you're, you're talking from, uh, from Portland and I'm talking from Ann Arbor. And so when, we, we're, when we're talking about traveling and, and going somewhere, what about travel in a car versus a bus versus a train versus a ship versus a plane? What are the aspects of those different um, local loc- uh, locomotive modes? Well, it's interesting. I think that there's the pleasure of traveling by these uh, by these means is sort of in, 
an inverse to their efficiency. Mm. Um, I mean, driving somewhere by car, unless you're talking about, obviously, a very short distance car is the most efficient. But if you're talking about going somewhere far, far, more than 400 miles or 300 miles, you start to, to see that a car becomes less efficient um, and more cumbersome, and that flying is going to get you there quicker. Flying is not particularly pleasurable. In fact, I, I mean, I, people, people love to talk about how unfun flying is and how much less fun it's becoming. But it's, I, I mean, I, I can't imagine that it was ever all that fun. I mean, you're being launched into, a, you're in a metal box across large distances in tight confines. It isn't really fun. Driving can be really fun, and a road trip can be part of the trip. And so if your goal is to kind of, first of all, have control over your itinerary, and then also to have the freedom to kind of go, well, that, that fork in the road looks interesting. I think I want to go over there. I think I want to go see what's around that corner. A road trip can be, can be great fun. It might take you twice as long to get where you're going. Um, and it isn't necessarily cheaper if you have to factor in an extra night stay at a motel and you've got to pay for gas and there's wear and tear in your car or you have to rent a car, but it can be cheaper um, than flying, but it's an adventure. So I think road trip can be very appealing, as can, depending on where you are in, in the country or where you are in the world, train travel uh, and bus travel. Um, I think the U.S. is a little less um, hospitable to people mm -hmm. who are traveling by bus, at least as a, as a mode of pleasure transportation. It's not all that much fun, but it can be expensive and it can get you from one city to another. Uh, trains can be pretty cool. I think I think traveling by Amtrak, particularly out west where I am, if you travel up and down the coast, Seattle down to Portland, down to California and back up uh, in parts of the east coast too, or even out west across the Rockies, that can be a lot of fun and beautiful. What about ship? Do you have any experience with uh, reporting on cruises? I do. <laughs> it's not my favorite way to travel. I, well, I was going to ask you because uh, it seems that uh, traveling by, on a cruise, I mean, you have to like the mode of travel because that's yeah. part. That's got to be part of the trip. That's, I mean, because it's. It seems. To, I'm guessing it's. It has to be the slowest way to get somewhere besides walking across the ocean. And, yeah, that's uh, true. It, and <laughs> the mode of transportation is integral to uh, to the experience in that particular case. And so, yeah. uh, there are, certainly are gay cruises, and so gay cruises are where the ship is filled with a gay, lesbian, transgender, bisexual population. Right. And, it's, and when I say it's not my favorite thing, it's mostly because I am one of those people who loves to be able to, you know, when I come to the fork in the road, be able to say, oh, oh I want to go that way. Yeah, you I just go up to the captain's way. loft there, and you tell them to turn left at the iceberg. I mean, what's I've, the... Yeah, I've tried that, and they don't... Uh, but if this is true on planes and ships. Uh, nobody oh, seems true. to be willing to let me control hmm. the operation in these situations. So I, I seem to lose out in that scenario. But there are a lot of people who like not having to think about the navigational aspect of their trip, uh, in which case they don't feel they're giving up anything being on a ship. And, of course positive side of all of that is that this, particularly if you go on a cruise ship that's been chartered by a gay tour operator or a gay company that's organizing a gay cruise, you've got this great social thing going on. And um, I have to confess, I've never been on a gay cruise. It's probably something that's just for the sake of doing good reporting I need to do. I, I think I, I think I some research needs to be done, Andrew. I think <laughs> you're probably right, and I think I have to go and just you know do it. But I'm going. I'm, I'm actually going on a very non-gay cruise next year in Alaska. Uh, my parents are celebrating their 50th anniversary, and somehow they've decided that it would be fun to to bring their their now grown kids, including myself, on this cruise. So we're all going to go. And I will say there there's some great gay cruises that go to Alaska, and I used to cover 
spite of my not liking cruise ships all that much, I used to cover this for Fodor's. I used to cover cruise ships and ports of call. And if you're not that wild about going on a cruise ship, Alaska's one that I really do recommend because it affords you a chance to see scenery that you cannot see any other way. You really can't see the fjords and the glaciers and, and these, these remote bays, uh, particularly in southeastern Alaska, any other way. And, and so where does that trip start from? That we haven't we haven't actually chosen the exact one, but Alaska cruises will typically they're either going to start in Vancouver, British Columbia, or in Seattle. Mm. There are some that occasionally start farther down the coast in the U.S. and they actually go up. Um, these are kind of repositioning cruises where a ship ships and that sail in Alaska in summer then move down the coast and they tend to sh- to uh, travel around the Mexican Riviera and down ba- down through Baja California in the winter. So there's a there's a transition cruise. Um, it does that. But generally, they go from Seattle or Vancouver. It seems like you'd need to have a lot of time to invest in that kind of, uh, in that kind of travel. You do, although assuming that, um, you know, that, that your outlook on, on trips is that you can, you can do a five days off from work, you know, you can, you can get five weekdays off in a row. The cruise ship actually can work pretty well, and this is true for Caribbean cruises and Mexican Riviera cruises. They're, they're usually seven-day. There are a lot that are longer. But from Seattle, for example, you can do a seven-day Alaska cruise. And, and so if you're leaving, you know, you could do a Saturday to a Saturday or something like mm-hmm. that. All right. Well, when we come back, we're going to talk about the gay and, uh, versus straight market, weekend versus day travel, and, and some specific, you know, really good recommendation areas. So, uh, Andrew, you're going to hang on, I guess. And uh, we're going to uh, have the book report in just a moment. You're listening to Closets Are for Clothes from the Gay Radio Collective, and we'll return to Andrew Collins and our discussion of travel. Next is the book report from Keith Orr at Common Language. Thank you, David. This is Keith Orr reporting from Common Language Bookstore in Ann Arbor, Michigan. In keeping with the theme of the show, we're going to talk about books from our travel section today. And what a pleasure it is to be on the same show as Andrew Collins. We met Andrew several years ago when he was writing The Fodor Gay Guide. Sadly, this guide was a series that was not continued, but we do continue to enjoy Andrew's writing. Gay travel books fall generally into three categories. References, guides, and travel stories. The reference books are the volumes that simply list places. They are an invaluable guide to the gay traveler as they provide information about safe havens, What accommodations are gay or gay-friendly? Which beaches to visit? Where are the gay bars, bookstores, and stores? Top among these are the Damron Guides, the Men's Travel Guide, the Women's Traveler, and the Damron Accommodations. Also popular are the Gay Yellow Pages. These guides have annual editions as the landscape changes quickly. I'm rarely on a trip without my Damron. The reference books are great at telling you the what and where. They let you know if a bar is leather or suit, men or women, trans-friendly, etc. Every Damron listing includes an alphabet soup, such as MW, D, MR, E, WC. You then have to go to the key to discover that this means men and women, dancing, multiracial, live entertainment, and wheelchair accessible. Guidebooks, on the other hand, provide a greater overview of an area. They go beyond the simple listings and start to provide some depth of reporting about an area. They will often go beyond simply telling you what is gay at a destination and provide information for a well-rounded traveler. 
This category of travel writing provides more of the landscape or context. You learn, for instance, not only what accommodations are gay or gay-friendly, but, but you also get a write-up on them, uh, and they are placed within a neighborhood and context. It's one thing to know, for example, that the Chelsea Pines Inn is a gay hotel in New York City. It is more enlightening to know that each room has a movie star theme. It's on the border of Chelsea in the West Village. What restaurants are nearby? How far is it to the Broadway theater? Should I take a cab or a subway? These guides act more like a native, helping you find your way around. They tell you what to avoid and what you won't want to miss. There are a variety of guides of this nature, including the Out Traveler series and location-specific texts, texts like Gay Vegas, a guide to the other side of Sin City. And the new kid on the block of this sort are the Q Guides. There are Q Guides for a wide variety of gay cultural topics, such as Q Guide to Oscar parties and Q Guide to the Golden Girls. But they also have several well-written Q Guides on topics such as gay beaches, Amsterdam, or Fire Island. The final category is the broadest sweep of travel writing. Sometimes these are more memoirs of time and place. They help the traveler gain an enriched understanding of place. Greg Heron, for instance, edited an anthology called Love Bourbon Street, which is a collection of writings and reflections on New Orleans by natives, transplants, and travelers to the Crescent City. The University of Wisconsin's Terrace Books have been producing some excellent books for the LGBT reader lately, both fiction and nonfiction. Last year, they published Big Trips, a collection of travel writing edited by Raphael Kadoshin. It is a far cry from the simple list of ten must-sees. Instead, writers like Edmund White, Clifford Chase, Andrew Holleran, Dale Peck, and more tell their stories with verve. Their odysseys remind us of the need for love and adventure, for a new sense of place. In short, they provide the type of inspiration of the need to leave home in the first place. Terrace Books is following this volume with Something to Declare, a similar compendium of lesbian travel writing, uh, edited by Jillian Kendall. Due out next month, this collection presents accounts ranging from poetic and internal to exhilarating and life-altering. Rather than reporting on just places to stay or local fare or politics, these women share personal stories of exploration and adventure. Lucy Jane Bledsoe and her partner camp out and negotiate their way through Tierra del Fuego in Fruits at the Border. Leslie Newman's Bashert tells the retrospective journey of a college graduate undergoing a simultaneous awakening of her sexuality and artistic talent while working on a kibbutz in Israel. Lori Sutherland's Hot Springs, Montana, describes her return with the help of a native woman to the place in Montana where her family once made their home. So, bon voyage from Keith Orr at Common Language Bookstore, and happy reading. Keith Orr reporting from Common Language Bookstore, brick and mortar based in Ann Arbor and on the web at glbtbooks.com. At that website, you'll find a link to their storefront that allows you to order books online and have them shipped to you. The phone for Common Language is 734-663-0036. I'm David Christopher Meitzler, and you're listening to Closets Are For Clothes.
Before there were drive-bys, there were rumbles. Before there were MAC-10s and 9mm, there were switchblades and zip guns. Before there were crips and bloods, there were jets and sharks. Join the daddy-os and cool kittens, the vatos and senoritas at WCBN's Free Night at the Movies on Wednesday, August 12th for the hippest gangsta musical ever, West Side Story. It's Romeo and Juliet meets Blackboard Jungle. Here's some of the best tunes ever written for Broadway. Watch tough guys dance on their toes, check out cool threads, and pick up arcane slang. It's West Side Story, August 12th at the Arbor Brewing Company. Cut the frabba-jabba and be there. It'll make you feel pretty. You're listening to the Gay Radio Collective on 88.3 WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Write us at closets at gayradiocollective.org. You can also find archive shows on our website or the weekly broadcast on iTunes. Support for WCBN and Closets Are For Clothes comes from the community and listeners like you. Hear WCBN anytime at the website wcbn.org. One walk on the beach, be you, be you. What raptures you'll reach, be you, be you. One walk on the beach, free to each. It will teach you to parlay and sing, be you, be you. It's such a simple thing. One song to sing, be you, be you, and the heart's full of zing, be you, be you. One song to sing, it will fling so much ring that she'll parlay and cling, be you, be you. It's such a simple thing, but oh, what joy it brings. One song to sing, and you'll wing from your heart to the head. One garden to grow, be you, be you. Every gardener knows, be you, be you. Row after row, plant the seeds, get the weeds, soon a fabulous show, be you, be you. It's such a simple thing, but oh, what joy it brings. One garden to grow, and you'll flow from your heart to the sublime why not have a good time it's such a simple thing but oh what joy it brings full moon in the sky and you'll start from your heart to the heavens 
One joke from a friend. Does life really end? One joke from a friend, and you'll end up in bends from the laughter it brings. It's such a simple thing, but oh, what joy it brings! One joke from a friend, and you'll end with your heart in the heavens above. One song to sing, and you'll win from your heart to the heavens above. One walk on the beach, and you'll reach from your heart to the heavens Listening to Closets Are for Clothes, the song was uh, One Walk on the Beach from Kathy Moore, and her music's at kathymoremusic.com, and it's also available through uh, CD Baby. Back on the phone with Andrew Collins, expert traveler, expert traveling reporter, uh, calling from uh, Portland, Oregon. Uh, how you doing, Andrew? I'm doing well. Great. Um, we were talking previously about traveling, the gay market, the, uh, the why we travel, why we don't, and the, and the ways we do it. But tell me, you know, I, I read in my initial introduction that uh, the travel market f- uh, provided by gay and lesbian uh, population is worth around $55 billion annually. Has it been your experience that, that's, that there really is a, a significant uh, aspect of business from that population? Well, I, I think that there is. Uh, it's difficult to really gauge this statistically. Any kind of research that's done into this, you know, obviously, as you probably come up with whenever we're, you're talking about the, the LGBT population, it's a self-identified group. And so it's, it's difficult, you know, to figure out exactly what the gay market is um, and to identify it and, and to conduct research accurately. But I, I would say, and this is probably a little bit less about specifics of sexual orientation and more about the commonality in certain lifestyles that tend to spend a lot of money. And um, people who don't have kids and aren't saving money to put their kids through school, um, and people, uh, I think, certainly professionals and people who also marry later um, are, or, or partner later, I think, are apt to have discretionary funds that they're going to spend more on travel than maybe on some other things, and uh, certainly in the gay and lesbian and bisexual and transgender community, you're certainly less likely to uh, encounter people who have kids. And you're also, the other issue is dual-income households, and you're, you're often going to find dual-income households so far, or more so, I think, than in, in perhaps the rest of the population. Hmm. And is... is uh... When you're traveling, are you you're not only just going to uh, gay gay places, gay friend, gay friendly places, right? I mean, you're you're. I'm going all over. You're going all over the uh, place. Yeah, I mean, I am. Are you, are I you just? Do you, you have know, you the just, only thing that yeah. the only the only area where I would sort of discourage gay people from, if not traveling, certainly being out while they're traveling, it's just when it's an issue of safety, and and you know there are parts of the world where it's not particularly safe to travel as as a Westerner, um, and specifically as as you're openly gay, and, you know, the Middle East has some of those places, but even 
you know, you, you certainly hear more about gay violence and violence toward gay people and even places that aren't very far from here, such as Jamaica, um, is one where that's an issue. Where and yet, Jamaica course, is, it, is not gay-friendly? Is that what you said? It is not gay-friendly. Mm-hmm. And, and there's certainly, obviously, there are parts of the United States that are, that are more gay-friendly than others. But, um, you know, on the whole, I feel that this is, this is a pretty safe country to go and explore and, and, and to go be yourself in. Um, obviously, I would caution, you know, I would, I would advise using more discretion um, anywhere where you feel a little bit threatened or you feel like you're around people who have a hostile view toward gay people. But I think it's good to go out and travel um, anywhere. And I think that, you know, ultimately this is this is sort of in the direction of, of helping advance civil rights as well, that the more that we're out there and we're, insofar as it's safe, we're out as we are when we travel, um, you know, that's helping to sort of break down some of the ignorance against LGBT people in the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, June is probably, is that a, a month maybe with an increase in gay travel because it is also Pride Month and perhaps people are traveling to uh, larger cities to participate in parades and celebrations and rallies? Yeah, and increasingly even in smaller, I mean, very small cities um, are having really you know, pretty big Pride rallies. And they're happening year-round. Um, but certainly mostly in the summer, and June is the big month for it, and, um, and all through June. I mean, and, you know, you see cities, uh, and all through the Midwest for that matter. I mean, you see Cincinnati and Cleveland and Indianapolis and Chicago and Minneapolis and St. Louis and Kansas City, I could go on, all have gay pride events um, in the month of June. So that's a really good time to go. And this kind of speaks, you know, this kind of leads me to the, to the distinction, I think, between, or at least the two things that, that I address when I'm writing about gay travel. I mean, there are the destinations that we've talked about that are really very, very popular with gay people, and they have a lot of gay nightlife and gay-owned businesses, and they may also have pretty major um, events, not just pride events, but film festivals and parties and gatherings and, and other things that go on. And then there's kind of the rest of the world. You know, there, there's, there's everything else that's out there where we as people just want to go, um, gay or straight. and to that extent, as someone who's writing for the gay and lesbian community, I'm really just trying to be a voice of someone who you might trust a little bit more if you're gay, because we are inherently disposed to trust people who are a little more like ourselves, I think. And so in that sense, I'm going to write about a place that maybe doesn't have any gay scene. And my hope is just that I'm providing information and I'm providing a perspective that other gay people will relate to a little bit better. Um, but that certainly is every bit as much a, a part of gay travel as going to a Fort Lauderdale or going to Chelsea in New York City. I mean, it, you know, it can be, there's no reason, you know, if, if you're on it and you're gay and you're driving through rural Mississippi, then rural Mississippi has just become a gay destination. <laughs> I guess you're right. I guess I guess you could uh, you could bring your party with you. If exactly. People don't say to me, there. so what, you know, what's gay travel? What makes travel gay that you're writing about? And I say, well, I'm writing about it. <laughs> that alone, you know, sets it off to some extent. Um, now, have you, in your travels, in your exploration of the, uh, we'll, we'll focus a little more on you on the United States right now, but have you discovered sure. gay areas that you previously didn't know about? Well, you know, not so much, I mean, yes, in a way. When I first started writing the, the Gay Guide for Fodors, I didn't know anything, uh, I actually didn't know anything about Saugatuck. I mean, I grew up in, in the Northeast, and I hadn't really traveled all that much around the country. I was only two years out of college. and um, So Saugatuck was kind of a new one for me. It probably isn't for, 
for your listeners in, in the area. But another one was Eureka Springs, um, Arkansas, and I had no idea that there was a pretty well-developed uh, gay travel scene, resort scene, if you will, in this little rural town up in the Ozarks um, in Arkansas. But there are a whole bunch of gay-owned B&Bs and gay-friendly businesses. Um, so that was one that sort of surprised me. But but probably what surprises me a little bit more, and it continues to, and this, this I learned more and more from writing um, for the site that I do on about.com, gaytravel.about.com, where I can basically look at every single page and every single article I do, and I can see, well, what's the most popular stuff? What are the, what are the ones that are getting the most page views? And it's not always the San Francisco's and the New York's and, and the Fort Lauderdale's. Um, you know, places like Savannah and Charleston do extremely well on that site. Um, a lot of the, I would say, kind of four corners region of the country, so... Santa Fe and Sedona have always had kind of a, a bit of a gay following, but even like Moab, Utah, and Durango, Colorado, um, they do really well. And another thing that does really well, which I guess is appropriate given that I'm speaking with you, are, are college towns. College towns almost always seem, you know, there seem to be a lot of people searching for information on uh, on my site for, you know, where's what are some cool places to go or stay if I'm going to Bloomington, Indiana, or Iowa City, or Ann Arbor. Um, and as we sort of, you know, can, can conjecture, college towns make a lot of sense for gay travelers. They tend to be more progressive than other communities their size um, and, and more welcoming and have a bit of a gay scene. And then they also tend to have a, have a very well-developed cultural scene and often a great restaurant scene as well. So is, it, is there, is there a, a shift that's been happening over the past several years that instead of needing to go to the large metropolitan centers, uh, as long as there is just a gay-friendly atmosphere, or let's just say a non-hostile atmosphere, not necessarily right. gay-friendly, but just not, non-hostile. And, and as you're saying, university-type towns, you'll, I, I guess the idea is you'll typically see a non-hostile environment in a town where there are universities because people are used to exploring ideas and learning things and uh, understanding different cultures and the way different uh, 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 people within a population work. And so people don't need to go to the big cities anymore, but they can just find any type of nice town to go, uh, which may be off the beaten path, may not be on the map so much. Definitely. Yeah, yeah and I think, it, I think a lot of that depends, too, if you're going, uh, you know, sort of also breaking down two very fundamental ways that people travel. People travel often to find a social scene, you know, and maybe even to find romance. And so they're going to go somewhere where maybe there, there are gay bars and there are gay events and, and there are big parties and things going on. But I think very often if romance is, is what's happening and that you're going somewhere with your partner and you just want to have a romantic getaway, you're not necessarily looking for there to be any gay nightlife or any, you don't really even care if you're running to another gay person on the whole trip. You just want to go somewhere where you can be yourself and be comfortable mm-hmm. and particularly be comfortable together as a couple. Um, and in that regard, you know, they're like I just got back from coastal Maine, um, which down at the very base of Maine, and there's a town called Agunquit that does actually have a bit of a gay scene and has some gay bars. But the rest of coastal Maine, you're not going to find any nightlife. Nightlife is, you know, crickets hmm. um, and and foghorns on, on boats. Um, but it's beautiful, and it's a very it's a pretty liberal state. It's a pretty welcoming state. They just passed gay marriage in Maine, and you're going to be fine as a couple, and you're probably going to have a lot of fun and, and feel very welcome traveling around coastal Maine, as an example, and there are many others, um, even though there's not really any gay scene, per se, outside of, 
of a gun quit. And I can imagine also that a number of people are going to focus their vacations on, you know, let's say uh, couples who are interested in getting married. They're going to vacation and go to a, a state that supports gay marriage and uh, has legalization of it. So, and that's where they're going to spend their money. That's where they're going to vacation. And that's where they're going to well, have their ceremony. You're right. It's true. And it, and it may even be regardless of whether they have um, a particular, whether they're going to have a ceremony or whether they're mm -hmm. going to get married. I mean, I think there's, you know, we tend to vote with how we spend our money. All of us do, and the gay community certainly is no exception. And so there tends to be, you know, a feeling that, well, you know what, all things being equal, I'm going to go to that destination that just passed um, gay marriage legislation. Or maybe I'm not going to go to one that, that repealed a law or that doesn't have really friendly civil rights laws. Um, so, yeah. All right. Let's let's talk a little bit about uh, ad advice uh, and and choices and uh, coming from you as a travel and vacation professional. What do you think about travel together versus alone? Well, I think that comes back to the idea of you know, a is there romance? I mean, you know, if you're, a, if, I think I love traveling alone. I think it can be a lot of fun, and you know, you don't have to compromise with anybody when you're alone. You mm -hmm. can just go off and do what you want to do. You also have to be comfortable sitting in a restaurant. Times and sitting, you know, sitting at a, at a table and being alone in a room where, where perhaps you're the only <laughs> lone diner. Mm. Um, so there's that. But um, you know, the, the group thing—you can save a lot of money if you're traveling with a few friends. I mean, two couples can often save a lot of money by traveling around, and, and you can find a number of accommodations that have either a room with two beds or a suite that has two sections. And, and so there are. There are ways to make it a lot more cost-effective and a lot more fun to travel with friends. And also renting, you know, cottages or renting a place together, which certainly is more economical with a group of friends. Or maybe you could have a vacation where you start out alone and you come back with somebody else. That's, uh, that's been known to happen. That's potentially yeah. possible, I guess, you know. Yeah, in theory. Um, uh, now, about travel etiquette, and I think this is a very important issue. Uh, do you, can you give me perhaps the top three or top five rules of the road when traveling? And you can apply this for specifically gays, lesbians, transgender people, or, or just in general. But well, I know you've seen you know, a lot. This, this ties to etiquette, I suppose, in one way, and it isn't necessarily specific to the gay market. But a lot can go wrong when you travel. And, and some of the best stories that probably many of us have told our friends have been travel disasters, you know, playing missed flights and lost luggage and hotels, you know, whatever, fire alarms going off in the middle of the night. I think it's... It's helpful, and it's certainly you know more pleasurable if you can travel with the attitude that this stuff is going to happen. You're going to have calamities, things. You're going to have disasters. You know whether you want to let those disasters ruin your vacation is entirely optional. You know that's up to you. Um, but you're going to have stuff happen, and you know so that's sort of more of an attitude, I suppose, than it is etiquette. But assume that these things are going to happen, and to the extent that it's possible think ahead of time what you're going to do if these things happen. I mean, it's a good idea, for example, and I always do this, is to take a picture with a digital camera or scan your passport and your driver's license oh. and your itinerary and, and different important documents and email them to yourself. And then you can, you can, you can you know, retrieve that information at any Wi-Fi connection anywhere, even if you lose the physical stuff. Um, it's not going to solve all your problems, gonna, but it's going to make it a little bit easier um, so there, there are things like that you can do, and you can also just think, well, if I do miss this flight, let's say, I, let's say that, uh, or I do miss this connection, what am I going to do? What's my next step going to be? What are the contingencies? And, and obviously, the more you think about that stuff, not worry about it and not fear it, but just sort of 
anticipate it, I think the better you can handle it. Um, and another tip that I would give, which is just kind of common sense, I suppose, but I see it, um, I see people lacking it often, is when you do run into a situation that, uh, you know, you've missed your flight or the airlines screwed you over in one way or another, or you feel they have, um, or, or somebody in the travel industry, you know, you need their help, something has gone wrong, um, to approach those people with, with a sense of humor and a sense of humility and just to kind of go, you know, I, nothing works better than going up to, uh, to a completely crazed airline employee in a chaotic situation and saying, gosh, you look like you're having a rough day. You know, how can I make things a little easier for you? Here's my situation. And you're putting them in a position where they can feel good about helping you. Um, and if they can't really help you, at least they don't feel like you're one more person who's going to scream at them. So, you get stuff that way. Yeah, I mean, so, so generally taking, uh, taking vacations and traveling with uh, a sense of, re- of relaxation and even pace and, and humor and not stressing about making sure everything is exactly the way you planned it. I mean, do, uh, do trips always... I'm assuming that they just don't always go as planned. I mean, they're just not. It's just not going to happen. Yeah, they, they don't. And, and That's often, part of the adventure. You know, serendipity can be a lot of fun. Yeah. What else for etiquette? Well, for etiquette, you know, I'm not sure. Maybe I'm, How about I'm, in I'm restaurants? probably not really answering specifically to etiquette so much as I am to just sort of strategies. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's and, true. you know, another one is packing. I mean, pack as lightly as you possibly oh, can. Oh, so, okay, I need to take... I need to take cameras. I need to take phones, chargers, computers. I need to take uh, clothing. How much clothing should I be taking for a one-week-long trip? I don't think that you should ever. I think a week's worth of clothing is generally fine. So if you're going for seven days, you can you can generally get seven days. At least most people, I think, can get seven days worth of clothing into one suitcase, one fairly fairly you know a mid-sized to smaller suitcase. If you're going for more than a week, don't take more than a week's worth of clothing. Just anticipate that you're going to do laundry. Um, it's not fun to lug around two weeks worth of clothing all around Australia or all around Europe or the kinds of places where you're apt to go for a long time. So just just figure you're going to lose two hours and an afternoon at a laundromat, and, and you'll be a lot happier the rest of the time. Um, and for all that electronic stuff you mentioned, I mean, I bring all that. I'm, I'm working when I'm traveling. Um, you know, think it over. You know, you may not need it. Don't just sort of instinctively grab everything that you're used to having at your disposal at home and take it with you. Um, but I think it can be very helpful. You know, certainly it's no fun to have a camera if you forgot your charger and, you know, make checklists of these things. Um, but it can be very helpful to have a device with GPS on it, whether it's a PDA or a cell phone or an actual GPS device. And it really can be incredibly helpful. I mean, I think this is something you can really do yourself a favor and make sure that you have some device with an internet connection. Um, it doesn't have to be your laptop. You may have a phone that has a, you know, that has a browser. Isn't it true, though, I'm doing that... a lot of my research on the fly. I mean, but isn't it true that a lot of places you go, you're going to find some type of resource place now with a connection? Probably, and you, you may very well find a computer there. I mean, you may find a and b or you may find a cafe, that, you know, an internet cafe that has computers, and that in a pinch works. Yeah. It's not much more convenient to have something of your own. And I mean, I think a laptop can be a pain to carry around if you don't really need it. I think, I think the best compromise if you travel fairly often is, is just a cell phone with a browser. It doesn't have to be, you know, um, a BlackBerry. It can be something less fancy. And just being able to look up, um, to go to TripAdvisor and Yelp, um, which are a couple of great sites where, where people 
post reviews about things um, and to be able to go to, there are a couple of great gay sites. Um, PurpleRoofs.com is one that lists gay-friendly accommodations. Um, GayCities.com is one that's kind of kind of like a gay version of Yelp, basically. People, uh, individuals can post their their own reviews of gay bars and, and gay restaurants and accommodations around the world. And those, those can be really very helpful, and it's great to have access to them while you're in a town, not just before you go. Yeah, let me ask you about those resources. Do we still need travel agents with Internet, well, with, the, with the way we can access information need, and resources? You need a, I don't know that you need a travel agent in the sense that you used to, where you, have, you, know, where you go into a shop and you talk to someone and say, here, book my trip. But Expedia um, and Orbit, and some of these big sites out there, are basically travel agents. You know, they're online travel agents. So, so to the extent that, they're, that the Internet can be your travel agent, yes. Um, and there are also certain tour operators that, that cater very strongly to the gay market, and, and so they can kind of function to help you plan a trip um, somewhere with the angle in mind that you're a gay traveler and you're looking for gay-friendly businesses and nightlife. And uh, top three gay places to go on a trip in the United States? Well, I'll tell you what. I'll, I'll, I'll pin this down to the fact that I'm talking to somebody in Michigan and three places that you, that you might not have thought of or you may not know a whole lot about that aren't all that far from Michigan, which I'm going to say Columbus, Ohio, mm-hmm. Bloomington, Indiana, and, um, and Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And I think those are three three places that are somewhat underrated and not everybody knows about. And mm. they're, not, they're not, you know, big resort towns, and they're not Chicago. But they have pretty cohesive gay scenes. They're very gay-welcoming. Um, they're a lot of fun, and they're not particularly expensive, especially if you're coming from Michigan. You know, you can drive to all of them. Um, and they're, they all have really, like, great gay scenes, especially Columbus. Columbus is just Nobody ever thinks of Columbus because it's not really a place you think of for a vacation, perhaps. But uh-huh. well, really a fun place to go. All right, now what's what's up? What's coming up for you? You know, I know you're going to take that uh, cruise to celebrate your parents' anniversary in a year. And and what about uh, plans coming up? Uh, any publications coming out? Well, another thing that I that I really love is the Oregon coast, and uh, I live an hour and a half from from the coast in Oregon, which is every bit as beautiful as the California coast, but much, much, much less crowded. And it's a fun place to go for anybody, um, you know, even if you're not local like this, to fly in. You can always fly into Portland and go to the coast. So I'm renting a house out there with friends, and I'm going to spend a week out on the coast soon. And I'm going to Sydney, Australia in September, and Mexico in October, and yeah, the list just kind of goes on. You just don't stop. One or two big trips. <laughs> you don't ever stop. You're just always in motion. I don't ever stop. No, at all. And the, and the thing that I'm really working on the most often is the site for about.com. And I really am trying to write about every conceivable place that I can on that site. And if I haven't written about it, I try to link to an article about it that someone else has written. So I'm trying to really make that a go-to resource where you can find information on travel. Andrew Collins, thank you so much for joining the show today. Guy, a writer of the Gay Guides of Fodors and... Uh, uh, you can get his blog now at uh, gaytravel.about.com. Andrew, thanks. Sure, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Closets is on the Internet at gayradiocollective.org, wcbn.org, iTunes, and Facebook. Our engineer was Alex Belhaj. I'm David Christopher Meitzler. You've been listening to Closets Are for Clothes, and we are the Gay Radio Collective.
Before there were drive-bys, there were rumbles. Before there were MAC-10s and 9mm, there were switchblades and zip guns. Before there were crips and bloods, there were jets and sharks. Join the daddy-os and cool kittens, the vatos and senoritas at WCBN's Free Night at the Movies on Wednesday, August 12th for the hippest gangster musical ever, West Side Story. It's Romeo and Juliet meets Blackboard Jungle. Here's some of the best tunes ever written for Broadway. Watch tough guys dance on their toes, check out cool threads, and pick up arcane slang. It's West Side Story, August 12th at the Arbor Brewing Company. Cut the frabba jabba and be there. It'll make you feel pretty.